All right, church, it's Memorial Day weekend. This is the weekend we remember the men and women who gave their lives for our freedom. You know, there are two people who will die for you, the American soldier and Jesus Christ. The American soldier will die for your freedom physically and politically, and Jesus Christ died for your freedom spiritually and eternally. We celebrate them both. And we also remember on Memorial Day, I love to remember missionaries. Because missionaries cross an ocean, learn a language, and often give their lives for the expansion of the gospel in the hardest places on earth. So we remember all through Memorial Day. Now for many of you, I know what Memorial Day means. Memorial Day means uh, the pool's open, school's out, vacation has started, summer, I know it doesn't really start till June 21st, but it has officially began. And we want you to know this, that at Two Cities, we're not slowing down this summer. There's a lot going on. Uh, one of the things I want to let you know about real quickly is Kids Week. June 17th to June 21st, it's going to be five days in a row, we're doing Kids Week. Kids Week is different than VBS. We're not against VBS, lots of churches do VBS, that's great. Kids Week is this. It's when we say we love kids, we love parents, we love our city. We want those three things to come together. Uh, what we want to do in Kids Week is have parents serve alongside their kids and serve the city in Jesus' name. So whether you can, my family did this last year, we had a great time. Whether you can do this one night or all five days, let us know. You'll see it on social media. You'll get an email about it. You can go on our website and sign up. It's a great way for families to serve together. With that said, let's pray for our kids, let's pray for our city, and then we're going to dive into 1 Peter. Pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for our city. We don't have a church vision here. We have a city vision. We love our city. We, want to, we care for it. We want to see the people of our city loved and blessed and saved. And I thank you for our kids. We've got 175 or more kids each week next door learning about Jesus, loving the church, um, learning about mission and service. And I just I, I pray that, uh, that all of the kids in, in our church would come to Christ at an early age. They would always love the church. They would always love the Bible. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what we're doing. We are, I'm going to kind of remind you briefly about where we have been. I, I, we're going to be covering a lot of content this evening, so I'll do this really quickly. Uh, but over the last three weeks, we covered the first chapter of 1 Peter. And, and we keep saying this phrase again and again, and hopefully you're going to get it. If you haven't got it already, you'll get it by the end. Um, the main theme of this book is this world, this earth is not our home. It's not our final destination. In fact, every sermon is titled, Not Our Home, But. But what? But, well, the first week was, it's a place to live as missionaries. It's a place to live sent. The second week was, it's not our home, but it's a place of suffering and trial, so we shouldn't be surprised. And then last week, or two weeks ago, it is uh, not our home, but it's a place to be set apart and to live holy lives. So you could summarize chapter one as, we are to be sent, we are going to be suffering, but we are to live set apart. That was that. So that was the summary of chapter one. And then last week, I thought it was great. Logan came here, Logan Dagley came and preached on the life of Peter from Matthew 16, where Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock. I'm gonna build on you. Um, and by the way, every week in this series that I'm not preaching, someone's going to be up here preaching on the life of Peter from a different passage. So by the end of the summer, you're gonna know first Peter really, really well. And you're gonna know just Peter in general really, really well. I thought Logan did a great job. And what we celebrated last week was also Christian Cook and, uh, and him leaving, I believe this is his last Sunday with us, um, but Christian is leaving and heading up to Brooklyn, New York. And here's what we call that. I don't think it was said in the video, but what we call that here is a gospel goodbye. A gospel goodbye is when somebody says goodbye because of the good news. It's when somebody moves for the sake of mission, and our church is filled with those. In fact, it's not just Christian that's moving up there. We've got actually four people that are moving up there to help that church plant. 
Logan's told us that, that we are one of the churches that is really anchoring them and helping them launch well, remission, repurpose that church. We are incredibly excited. We genuinely believe here that our sending capacity is more fundamental and important than our seating capacity. So what you're going to get, and this is exciting, get ready because this fall, guess what? We're going to be planting another church. Every fall, we will be announcing a new church planter and a new church plant that we are getting behind because that's the Great Commission. God desire is for churches to plant churches that plant churches. So we're always going to keep that in front of us. We currently are supporting, funding, assisting, helping five churches, which has been really, really incredible. So with all of that said, open up the first Peter chapter two. And here's the big idea for tonight. Now, this place is not our home, but it is a place to grow up. That, let me explain that, but that, that this place, this earth is not our home and it's also not a place to stay immature. That God's call on your life is to grow up physically, grow up spiritually, grow up emotionally, uh, grow up relationally. Jesus Christ himself modeled this. You read the end of Luke chapter two and what you see is it says Jesus Christ grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and with man. Now, I don't know how you feel when somebody tells you to grow up. When was the last time someone told you to grow up? Some of you are like, my spouse on the way here, Okay. That's okay. That happens. Sometimes it's a parent that tells you to grow up. Sometimes it's a spouse that tells you to grow up. Um, Maybe it's something you did, something you didn't do. Maybe it's something you said. Maybe it's something you didn't say. Maybe it was an employer. Now, here's there's a tension in the phrase "grow up." In one sense, it says you are inadequate. You are underdeveloped. You are not all that you could be, which is true. In fact, I think one of the hardest things that we, one of the worst things we do to young people today is we say, "You're great. You're a snowflake. You're fine just as you are." And it's like, they're definitely not fine how they are. And, 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 and none of you are. I'm not. And, and if you tell somebody that they're okay, as they are, that's, they're okay as they are, that's like the worst thing you could say to somebody. Because they know, they're like, no, I'm not. I'm messed up. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I need help. Here's why I call, the call to grow up means you could be, by the grace of God, because of the cross of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you could be so much more than you are. And this is what you want. This is what every parent wants from their kid. Every good parent. Bad parents don't want their kids to grow up. Bad parents want to do everything for their kids and protect their kids so they never have to leave and they can always be their parent. That's a bad parent. This is why there's a famous saying that says, the good mother necessarily fails. Well, why is that? Because the good mother gets her kids ready to not need a mom anymore. That's what good parents do. This is, by the way, what you want in romantic relationships. Who do you want to marry? A grown-up. It's like the problem in the American church today is we have too many babes in Christ, too many adolescents in Christ, too many teenagers in Christ. Not enough grown-ups. And so I want to read to you this passage where Peter makes a strong call to grow up. And I want to call you on Memorial Day weekend to grow up. I say it in love. I'm not here to beat you up and build you up. I'm not here to call you out but to call you up. And I always talk to myself about these things first, okay? But with that said, here we go. So put away all malice, verse one. We'll talk about that. That's the word, the language of repentance. So put away all malice. Oh yeah, and all deceit. Notice the word all keeps showing up. And hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So three times he even uses the word all to say all of it. Like newborn infants long for, or literally it's translated crave, like strong consuming desire. 
Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may, here's the phrase, grow up. That's God's desire. Why does he want you to repent? Why does he want you to long for the word? So that you would grow up spiritually. He says, grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I'm not saying grow up to earn salvation. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the gospel. Religion says, and we reject religion in the wooden sense. Religion says, grow up, and if you grow up, God will love you. If you do these things and don't do these things and do these religious activities, if you grow up, God will love you. That's religion. Christianity and the gospel says, instead, because God has loved you and God has made you born again, it's because you're born again that you want to grow up. In other words, growing up is a result and byproduct of what God has done in your life. Here's the simplest way I know how to say it. You can't earn your salvation, but you can enjoy it. And some of you are not enjoying your salvation as much as you could because you've not fully grown up. And so this is the call today. What I want you to see is he's going to tell us, Peter's going to tell us four ways today that we can grow up. Four ways that we can grow up spiritually and become all that God would want us to become in Christ. And I'm going to give you each one of these in order. The first is simply this. We grow up through hearing the word preached publicly. If you open up the first Peter 1 verses 24 and 25, go back just two verses, he's going to talk about the fundamental way you grow. And I'm very passionate about this. Here's what he says. For all flesh is like grass. So flesh is a representation of you. In other words, there's a little bit of you and a lot of everything else. And you're finite. And everything around you is finite. And everything around you is either going to change or die. So that's the perspective the Christian has. Everything will change and die. Doesn't matter how beautiful it currently is. He says this. And all of its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. So that's the language of changing and dying. And then verse 25. But. In the midst of a world where everything else is falling apart, where everything else is fading, he says this. But the word of the Lord remains. If you underline, you may want to underline remains or literally endures. The word of the Lord endures forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's very honest. Here's what he says first. He says, everything's going to pass away. Nothing ultimately endures. You, you know this. Your, your iPhone is already out of date, okay? Your car needs to probably be replaced eventually. Your, your, your house is going to need to be updated, okay? Men in this room, even you, your hairline is receding, okay? Some of you guys, Okay. The whole idea is that nothing is going to last forever except the word of God. Now, the word of God is that which endures, which means we don't edit the Bible, we change our minds. That's how we approach the scripture. The scripture trans, uh, transcends and confronts every culture. And so when we come to God's word, we are not God's editors, but instead we are God's messengers. And if you read, what's one of the exciting things about reading the history, church history, and I've you know, being a seminary and stuff, I got to take a lot of church history classes, and there's a lot of crazy things that happen in church history. There's a lot of things that we're ashamed of and need to repent of as Christians in church history. One of the great encouraging things about church history is that the word of God, the stories of the word of God enduring again and again and again, starting here. So, so Peter says to these small group of Christians, he says, I know you're suffering, and I know that the most powerful man on earth, Caesar, is ruling over you. 
And I know that you're actually part of the most powerful group, powerful empire. You're under the most powerful empire at the time, the Roman Empire. But those things will fade away and the word of God will endure forever. And here we are. Caesar no longer is here. The Roman Empire is no longer here and the word of God is still enduring. If you've ever heard of the famous French philosopher Voltaire, Voltaire said this in the 1700s. He was an atheist. He was a critic of Christianity. He said, 100 years from today, he said this confidently, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. What's interesting is when he died, the French Bible Society bought his house and stored and sold Bibles out of it. <laughs> a little, little bit of irony there, but, but he said the word of God will not endure, and most people don't know that quote, yet the word of God endures. There have been so many governments, there have been so many organizations, there have been so many leaders that have tried to squelch the word of God. You've got a man like William Tyndale. William Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English. He said, I want to translate the Bible so the 15-year-old plowboy can read it for himself. That was his desire. Well, when he was doing that, they were so angry at him for translating the Bible, they strangled him and burned him alive at the same time. His final words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. So the, the, the encouraging thing about reading church history and knowing your Bible is that the word of God has endured. It has endured for centuries and millennium. And there's one application that I want you to see that we should primarily do with the word of God. And it's what sets the agenda for everything else. Look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about the importance of preaching. Now, you have to understand how awkward this is as I preach to you about the importance of preaching, okay? I, I thought about this moment in my preparation, the time when I preach on preaching. But here's what you need to know. There is nothing more powerful than the word of God preached and applied, that what preaching is, is it's heralding God's word with authority and without apology. And every Christian needs to regularly sit under God's word. It is an act of worship to gather together, to sit together. We say here that we do not create a downloadable experience. You can't get this on a podcast. There's something about being underneath the word of God. One of the first ways you know that you value God's word is you love preaching. And where you see the church be weak and where it atrophies, where Christians are confused, the church is weak and atrophied, it shows up first in the preaching. I know guys who they take churches and they're lead pastors or senior pastors of churches and they're told on day one, you can preach for 15 minutes. We call that an introduction here, okay? That the preaching, the belief in the authority and the necessity and the clarity and the sufficiency of Scripture, there's nothing more powerful. It's different than your Bible study. It's different than your devotion. It's different than your community group conversation. You need to be confronted. And you need to be comforted. The job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and confront the comfortable. And that doesn't happen if you're not sitting under preaching. People who say silly things about preaching are people who've never heard it. And I thank God that our church loves preaching. My buddy Matty B was here a few weeks ago, and uh, Matt Bradner, 
And, he, and afterwards, he called me. And I don't normally get phone calls, you know, the day or two after someone comes here. I normally call them. But I was gone, and he called me. And he said, man, I've got to tell you, there's two things that really impressed me about your church. And I said, well, what were they? He said, number one, he said, uh, just the amount of people coming around. Four services. I, it was all, everyone was full. It was, you know, great, great people. And, and he said, and the second thing is, your ch- church loves God's word. And I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, they've been listening to the book of Judges. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked, and you preach for 45 to 50 minutes on the book of Judges. That's like a miracle. Like, like God, God is doing something, and, and your, your people, they, they love the word of God. And may that always be a distinctive in our church. I mean, preaching is so central. How did God create the world? A sermon. Genesis 1, God is preaching a sermon. How does God convict, convert, comfort, confront the word of God preached? If, and you read the book of Acts, you're like, the, the expansion of the church, how does it happen? Preaching. They're preaching in every chapter. The only chapters are not preaching, they're in jail for preaching. <laughs> True story. And you have to understand, this is so important because we've only had books for 500 years. Rich people were the only ones who could read until 200 years. The idea of having your own personal book and being able to read it by yourself is 200 years old. It's like, which means what led the church for, two, for 1,800 years is preaching. It's such a powerful reality. Why we do sermon-guided discussions is it's the word preached, and then it's the word discussed and applied in our lives. So it's the preaching of the word is the first thing. Here's the second thing. We grow up through craving and consuming the word personally. So it's not just the air war, it's the ground war. It's not just Sunday, it's every day. It's not just public, it's private. Here's what he says. So, verse one of chapter two, so put away, that's the language of repentance. He doesn't say hide away until your spouse is gone, until it's the weekend, until you're on vacation. It's the language of completely get rid of it, flush it down the toilet is the, is the idea. Can, I don't want to ever see it again. What he's going to say here, this is so important because he's going to tell you in a moment to crave God's word. But what he's saying is that what's, what's most important is how you posture your heart to approach God's word. Some of you go, why, why am I not getting anything out of the word of God? Well, there could be a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons might be, what is the condition of your heart as you approach God's word? And he tells you five things to repent of. And we might call these junk food, right? If what we're supposed to do is feed on God's word, it's both talked about as meat and milk. If we're supposed to feed on God's word, one of the reasons we don't feed on God's word is because we're so full of junk food. We're on like the Edo's diet, right? Cheetos, Tostitos, Doritos, okay? We're on the Edo's diet, and because we're doing that, we're not ready when someone invites us out to have a steak because we've been eating junk food. So he gives us five types, five types of junk food. I'll read these briefly. So put away all malice, that's ill will. Basically what he's saying is what hinders you from reading God's word is your critical judgmental spirit toward other people. Second thing he says is all malice and all deceit. What hinders you from reading your God's, God's word is you lie. Instead of admitting who you are, where you are, what your sin is, what your problems are, instead of confession, you choose lying. He says, in hypocrisy, in other words, you live a double life. Hypocrisy, hypocrite, it, I told you this before, but it it's, it's, comes from the actor who wears many masks in a play. 
It's the idea of compartmentalizing your life. It's the idea of having a private life and a public life and a weekend life and a vacation life and a golf life and a family life and a work life, and they're all different. And then he says, in envy, envy is when you cannot handle good things happening to other people. Somebody gets an inheritance they could never tell you. Somebody gets pregnant, single girl gets married, she can't tell you because you're envious because you can't obey the command of Scripture to rejoice with those who rejoice. He says, and then all slander. Slander is when you speak negatively of other people. It could be you make up things or it could be gossip. Gossip, by the way, is confessing other people's sins. And he's saying what, what happens here is all of those things hinder you from craving the word. He says what you need to do is put them away. In the Word of God, if you come to the Word of God with them, the Word of God will expose them, but once they're exposed, put them away. Cleanse your mind, cleanse your heart. He says this, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, you think about, I I love our church for many reasons. One is just how many young families, how many new babies are in our church. We're going to do a parent commissioning, child dedication next month. There's going to be a lot of babies up here. And uh, what's amazing is we have so many families that are having new kids. And one of the things you learn early on is that babies don't care about the crib. They don't care about the changing table. Um, they don't care about uh, the curtains. They care about, when a baby's born, it cares about one thing, milk. At the end of the day, what a baby desires is milk more than anything else. That's why I think this illustration is so powerful. What it's saying, and this may make some of you uncomfortable, but what it's saying is that Christianity has to do with deep emotions and affections for God and his word. That, th- th- this is what happens. I don't know how else to describe it, except a, a guy told me this. I became a Christian, and I remember this. I was a brand new Christian, and an older gentleman in our church said to me, I was trying to explain what happened to me and, and the change. And I didn't have language. I didn't know much of the Bible. He said, God gave you new taste buds, didn't he? And I said, that's exactly what happened. I can remember... What, and, and I'm not, I don't like using myself as a positive example in my sermons. I have a lot of negative failures, sins, struggles. But I, I can remember being a brand new Christian. I was 16 years old, and I can remember. I don't know if you've had this experience, if you've had this experience or had this experience, but I can remember what it was like to just crave God's word. I was a brand new, I read the entire New Testament in a month. And that was a big deal for me because I didn't read. <laughs> I mean, I just never read. I just was not a reader. And then I came to Christ, and I'm like, my desires changed. I remember I went to every Bible study that was available through my friends through high school. I remember I was so excited when I went to Elon to be involved in Christian community that I showed up accidentally to a leaders meeting for a Christian organization. They were like, what are you doing here? How did you find out about this? I was just, I was on the website. I was looking, I just wanted to grow so bad. Christianity is not about intellectually assenting to facts. It's not about participating in religious activities. It's about being transformed at the deepest level so that you desire different things. And he's saying, here's what it is. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what does milk do? Milk is nourishment. Milk has antibodies in it or whatever you call it to, to, to protect you from disease. I know I'm not a doctor, okay. Um, and, and, and milk is also enjoyable. So it says this, the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation. Now, I want, I want to just very quickly talk briefly about <clears throat> how do you consume the Word of God? How do you consume the Word of God? Because there's six ways, and I'll give you these real quickly, but there's six ways that you get the Word of God inside of you. Because that's, that's the goal. The, the goal is not to get through the Bible but for the Bible to get through you. The, the, the goal is not to mark up your Bible, but to be marked by your Bible. That's the goal. So let me just give you quickly the six ways you get God's word into your heart. Number one, you hear the word of God. 
And nowadays, it's very easy. You can listen to preaching. You can listen to podcasts. You can get an audio Bible. You can just begin to listen and hear the Word of God through preaching. Uh, A second way that you can um, get the Word of God in your heart is to read the Bible. And, And I would just encourage you to create some type of plan for yourself. It doesn't have to be the Bible to year plan. That's often discouraging to people because they get to the book of Leviticus and they're like, I'm done. You know? but, but what you do is you set a, what if you said, I want to read the New Testament in two years? And I did the math. The New Testament in two years is less than a chapter a day. By the way, the definition, one of the ways to define humility is to set goals so low that you could actually attain them. <laughs> to say, I'm the kind of person who has such little desire for the word and such lack of discipline and I'm so inconsistent that I have to humble myself and set a goal of reading the New Testament in two years. And that's okay. That's a great place. I'm not, I'm not demeaning that. I'm just saying that's what humility is. Humility is I'm going to set goals so low that somebody even like me could meet them. So it's reading the Word of God. It's studying the Word of God. Here we use the SOAP acronym, S-O-A-P. Stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. The whole, and that, you can do that whether you're by yourself or with other people. You just come to the scripture, you observe it, what does it say? You interpret it, what does it mean? And then you pray over it. And if you get, begin to do that, that's, that's the beginning of most times of how I start any sermon prep. It's, it's, it's that simple. Then it's memorization. Memorization is storing and hiding the word of God in your heart. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And some people go, I can't memorize the Bible. I'm just not good at it. And it's like, well, you memorize movie lines and sports statistics and song lyrics and a bunch of other things really, really well. So it doesn't seem like it's memorization. It might be motivation. It might be the issue. And then there's meditation. Meditation is when you chew on it. You think on the Word of God again and again and again. And by the way, these are deeper. So you hear, then you read, then you study, then you memorize. Then what you have memorized, you meditate on. And so many of the commands in Scripture are to meditate, to think over the issue, the text, the idea again and again and again and again. And then finally, apply it. You don't really know the Word of God until you apply it. And you really only believe the parts of the Bible you obey. If there's a part of the Bible you're not obeying, it really means you're not believing it. So if you begin to do these things, you get the Word of God in you. Now here's what he says in verse 3. That the Word of God in you says this, chapter 2, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What he's saying is, if you're really a Christian, there's two, there's two reasons you wouldn't want the Word of God, that you wouldn't crave the Word of God. You're eating too much junk food, spiritually, or you're not born again. That a, a, a Christian who's been born again from the inside out has new desires and loves the Word of God. I, I was reading a book on parenting recently, and I'd highly recommend it. It's called Gospel-Powered Parenting. And, uh, and what he says in that book, the, the author, he's an older man, he says, he was talking about his kids being converted and coming to Christ, and he said, my, my teenage son, he said, he was always a good kid, he was very moral, he would pray with us at dinner time, you know, he was in student ministry, he said, but I, I saw him come to Christ when he was more like a teenager, and he said, the reason, the way I knew he had come to faith in Christ is he had a secret prayer life and a secret devotional life. That he would, by himself, without ever telling us, not putting on a religious performance, but he would pray by himself and he would seek the Lord and enjoy reading the scriptures by himself. He went on to say, if you have secret, consistent, unrepentant sin in your life, it might be a sign you don't believe. You're not really a believer. But if you have secret prayer and secret devotion that you love, it's most certainly a sign that you do believe. It's the affections. 
So first, he says you have to hear the word of God. Second, he says you should consume the word of God. Third, he says we grow up by being built up by God. Verses four and five. We grow up by being built up by God. And this is encouraging. What he's saying is it's not about your ability, but God's, or your, um, it's about your avail- availability and God's ability. That at the end of the day, this isn't grit your teeth and try harder and work faster and do more. That God is uniquely working in you. It's kind of the whole Philippians, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. Let me read this to you. Verse four, as you come to him, by the way, that's what faith is. That's what believing is. I come to Jesus Christ. They're synonymous in scripture. Um, He who believes in me will also come to me. You cannot say I believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm not coming to him. To believe is to, it's not just emotional, it's volitional, it's the will moving forward. As you come to him, a living stone. That's interesting. Peter, who was called a rock, now calls Christ the living stone. A living stone rejected by men, but, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He tells us a couple things here I want to focus on. He says that what, we're, what, what God is doing is he's ultimately building people. That's what, the idea of a living stone. It's something that's dead but is now alive. So what we call this here, the biblical word for this is discipleship. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is, help, is following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And what it means to dis- discipleship means opening our Bibles and opening our lives. And the hope is that we would see people deepen and develop in who they are to become more and more like Christ. When we think about our church, when we think about the, our community groups, or our DNA groups, our worship services, or kids ministry, or prayer night, what, what we're asking is, is this going to help us make more and better disciples? So he says here that we are living stones. Now, here's the problem in the American church. The problem in the American church and the Western church is that the church is built with dead stones. The church has been made up in most of the American church with dead stones, people who are not spiritually alive on the inside. And what happened is, and it's mostly the fault of pastors and church leaders, but we have allowed people to attend instead of be transformed. And we've said, as long as you give, As long as you show up to our programs, as long as you serve in these capacities, as long as you behave, then we'll allow you to be here even though you're a dead stone. See, and and people don't, we, we talk about this a lot because my fear is in a church of our size, there have to be in our church dead stones among the living stones. A dead stone is 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 a person who is religiously lost. They are, they are in this church, but they are not really in Christ. They have no passion for Jesus Christ. They have no desire for God's word. They have no hatred for their sin. They have no unique love for the Christians. Those are all what we call the new affections and new taste buds that God gives us when, when we're born again. I had, a, I had somebody after the second service this morning, very nice person, come up to me and say, you know, I'd like to talk to you more about this because when you said that, I, I, I feel like I'm a dead stone. And I'm thinking that might be the beginning of her being a living stone. Because she said, I just, I have no affection for Christ. I have no hatred of my sin. I have no connection with God. I've been playing church. And that's the great fear. What he's saying is, they're living stones. Now why stones? Because what stones were is, in the Old Testament what would happen is, 
Whenever God would do something great somewhere, they would put a pile of stones there and they would say, this is a place where God did something great. So what we're supposed to be with our lives is we're supposed to say to other people, God has done something great here. He's changed my life. He, he saved my marriage. He broke my addiction. He reconciled my family. God has done something great in my life. You are to, it's a powerful picture to say, you're a place people look and say, God did something there. Now, how do you know you're a living stone? He says one way, Jesus Christ is your cornerstone. You can look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? The first, the most foundational, the most precious, the most expensive, the biggest stone. It was, back in those days, it was the stone that would be the blueprint for the rest of the building. Every other stone would find its place and position based on Jesus Christ as their cornerstone. And so everybody has something as their cornerstone. It might be money, it might be sex, it might be family, it might be career, it might be health. You often don't know what it is until it's taken away from you. And I just, I hope you see the radical nature. I'm just amazed as I read the Bible, the radical nature of Christianity. That Christianity is so radical, you get entirely new desires and the very foundation of your life changes. That's not making a decision. That's not attending church. That's a radical, supernatural, inward transformation that God does. He says, verse seven, so here's what happens. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So basically he's gonna say, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and some people see it and see salvation and some people see it and they stumble over it. Now, why do people stumble over things? Because they don't see them for what they are or they're looking somewhere else. And he's saying, look at Christ. Look at Christ and be saved. See him for what he is. And then verse eight, he says, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. People don't stumble just because they don't believe. It's because of the way they're living. They don't want to repent. He says, a stone of stumbling. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. And there's the mystery of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty in one verse. So he says, you have to hear the word of God. You have to... Um, consume the word of God. You have to come to God to be built up. And here's finally, we grow by proclaiming his word to others. We grow by proclaiming his word to others. Verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I say this all the time, but I hope you just see it arise out of scripture. He gives them an identity before an activity. He tells them who they are before what they should do. He gives them the indicatives before he gives them the imperatives. All the time. If you read verse nine, here's what you're going to see. Four identities, one activity. Four different ways to say who you are, one thing for you to do. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let me just tell you what they mean really quick. Chosen race means God by grace is bringing people from all different backgrounds together. Amen. And that becomes the most important race. Our other races are important. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. They're important. They become secondary, not obliterated. They become secondary to the primary race, which is we've all, we all look different on the outside, but because of Christ, we're all the same on the inside. That's the idea of the chosen race. And then he says this, you're a royal priesthood. Every Christian is a minister. That's what that means. 
It means that what God wants to do, he wants to do through everybody in this room. God doesn't just want to work through me or just Pastor Dave or just community group leaders. God, what God wants to do, disciple people, see people come to Christ, counseling, care, service, mission, ministry. He wants to do it through all of us. Christianity is not a spectator sport and you can't sit on the sidelines. It's, it's, it's an all skate, okay? Everybody's playing. That's, that's how it is. And then he says, it's a holy nation. God is taking, it's the same idea. God's taking people from every nation, bringing them into one nation that doesn't have geographical boundaries. And then finally, a people for his own possession. What does that mean? God likes you. God actually wants you. Because of Jesus Christ, not because of who you are, that God actually likes you, that God didn't have to die for you, God wanted to die for you. That God's demeanor toward you is one of joy and that of the countenance of a glad father. That's what that means. So in light of that, you have one command, that or so that you may proclaim. What the church does is proclaim. We proclaim the excellencies. We open our mouth. There is no mission without opening up your mouth and telling people about Christ. It says this, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to talk about something for a moment. It's the difference between Ministry, service, and mission. I want us to, one of my great desires is definitions, clarity of thought, organization of mind. And, and, and Christians, we all do this, but we get lazy with our language. I want to help us. I want to help myself. Ministry, service, and mission are three different things. Ministry is the body caring for itself. Ministry is, if you say, well, I'm a part of the serve one attend one culture, that's ministry. If you say I'm in a community group or a DNA group or I helped in the kids ministry or I'll be at the prayer night or man, somebody needs premarital counseling and I'm gonna help them or someone's walking through sin and suffering and I'm gonna come alongside my brother or sister in Christ and help them, that's called ministry and we need to do that. And then there's service. Service is meeting people's physical needs in Jesus' name. Service is meeting people's physical needs in Jesus' name. It's not mission. So a lot of people, sometimes people go, man, my community group, we packed backpacks for the elementary school. It was so missional. It was not missional at all. It was a good thing that Christians should do. It's called service. Some people say, we cleaned up that parking lot. We helped at that school. We, we, we gave money to a homeless person, we fed somebody who was hungry, we helped with orphan care, we are so missional. That is not mission. That is called service. Mission only happens when you open your mouth and share the message of Jesus Christ crucified and you call people to respond in repentance and faith. The way service connects to mission is you do this. You give people bread and you tell them about the bread of life. You give people water and you tell them about the living water. You, help, you talk to people in poverty and you talk to them about real spiritual poverty. You talk to somebody who's uh, an orphan and you tell them how God is their father. You help them in their physical needs. But see, the problem is oftentimes in the church, we want to do service because no one will persecute us for service. If all the church does is serve and shut its mouth, the, the world will clap and remain unconverted and going to hell. The key verse on this is, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? If he was educated, adopted, got a good job, had enough food, but didn't know about Christ. 
And so as the church, I'm just passionate about this. I want you to see in verse 9, it's that we proclaim the excellencies. And look, it's a personal proclamation. You proclaim what you have personally experienced. That's why you're a living stone. I'm personally, I've personally experienced the grace of God in my life. This is why I love how he ends. Look at verse 10. He just ends with a gratefulness that we should all have. He says this, once you were not a people. So I, d- I just told you everything you were, your chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for your own possession, people for his own possession. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Here's what he's saying. You don't have to read your Bible, you get to read your Bible. You don't have to pray, you get to pray. You don't have to repent, you get to repent. You don't have to talk about Jesus, you get to talk about Jesus. You don't have to go to church, you get to go to church. It's like, yes, that's what we want, right? It's like, that, is that, you want to raise your kids in religion? You got to, we have to, we must. There are oughts in the scriptures, but the overall emphasis is, I can't believe what God has done in my life. He's given me such incredible new desires. He's made me a living stone. He's the massive foundation of my life. He's given me an incredible new identity. And now what I do is talk to other people about what he's done in my life. And I can't believe it because I used to not have any of this. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this at the very end. What's made the difference? Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy but now you have received mercy. The only difference between you and a non-Christian is God's mercy. And what he's saying is, if you think about your life, and and, and you realize all that God has done. In fact, if you were an Orthodox Jew back on that day, and you were to read 1 Peter, and you were to read spiritual house and royal priesthood and a holy nation, you would go, how can non-Christians, or sorry, how can non-Jewish people who become Christians, they're non-Jews, they're Gentiles, how can they be called a holy nation? The Old Testament says they can't be part of a nation. How can they be called a royal priesthood? The Old Testament says they can't be a part of the priesthood. How can they be God's people? The, the, the Old Testament says they're not God's people. Has the law changed? Has the law been altered? No, the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the great hero of Scripture in every sermon. Jesus Christ walks the earth and he says, I am the great temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He calls himself a temple. And what that means now is because that temple was destroyed, we can be living stones that are being built up. Jesus Christ says, I am the great high priest who didn't offer a sacrifice, but instead I was the sacrifice. And because of that, we can be priests. It's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But what you'll notice if you go back, all of the language of chapter two is communal in nature. The the great sins to avoid and put away are all communal in nature. Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander. And all of the language is, is that of community. You're a, it's not all individual, it's you're a chosen race. You're a people together. You're a holy nation. Well, why is that? It's because we, we're gonna need each other in this spiritual journey. It reminds me of a, um, a story I heard years ago about a guy, he, he, said, he was telling a story about walking downtown. He said, I never liked jazz music. He said, one night I was walking downtown and, uh, and I see this guy and he's sitting on the street and he's playing the saxophone and his eyes are closed and the whole time he's playing the saxophone, I could just tell he's so enjoying it. He didn't open his eyes for 10 minutes straight. It was such a beautiful sound. And then he said this, and I'll never forget this. He said, after, after that, I loved jazz music. 
He said, all I needed to do was I needed to see somebody else love something first so that I knew how to love it myself. And, and part of what you say, when you say, I want to get in a DNA group, I want to get in a community group, I want to go to a weekend, or I want to be part of this church, what you're saying is, I want to tie myself into relationships with people who are going to love the right things and help me to love the right things. It's that type of community. It's, and by the way, it's not a living stone, it's living stones. God's building us together so that we can, as a church, proclaim his excellencies to our city. Let's pray. Lord, we want to proclaim your excellencies. You've done so much in us and through us and for us. Lord, I just pray that a couple things for our church. One, that we would continue to love the word of God. That you would give us a desire and an appetite for your word that is insatiable. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would put away anything that would lead to division. Malice, slander, deceit, hypocrisy. Instead, we would crave the word of God. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would be committed to um, ministry, the care of the body, one, one for another, that we would be committed to service, serving our city in Jesus' name, and we would be consider, um, committed to mission, the forward progress of the message of Jesus Christ and the call to repent and believe. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.